Alright, we're starting here on the Mishnah on Kumem Chet Amur Aleph. Mishnah begins, Shu'ala Dami Chavero Kadeyayin Bikadeshem. And a person can borrow from his friend barrels of wine, barrels of oil. Ubuvad, Shaloyo Marlo, as long as he doesn't use this language, which is Halveni, as long as you don't say, lend me. Now in English, there's really no distinction between the words between Sheila and Halva'ah, whereas in Hebrew, there is such a distinction between the words Halva'ah and Sheila, and we'll discuss it a second in the Gemara as to what that difference is and why it makes a difference here. kikarot, woman can borrow from her friend rolls bread. mamino, what happens if you don't believe that the person is actually going to return it, so how do you ensure that you're going to get it back? Miniach talito, it's low. Then you ask him to leave his coat, you ask him to leave one of his possessions with you until afterwards. And then after Shabbat, and Shabbat, you straighten out the bill. If the 14th of Nisan falls out on Shabbat, where you have to bring a Korban of Pesach, on Shabbat itself. What happens if a person forgot to get his Korban Pesach and wants to buy it last minute and it's Shabbat? Then, goes to the butcher, he goes to the shepherd and he says, listen, I need a Korban Pesach. And again, he leaves one of his possessions there so that he can straighten it out. And then he straightens it out after Yom Tov, meaning that it'll be on the third day because that's Shabbat. The next day is Pesach, first day of Pesach. He'll only be able to straighten it out on the first day of Cholom What's the difference if you use a language of to borrow versus lend? When you say hashileni, you're not going to come to write it down. If you say to lend it, then he will write it down. Rashi claims that the difference is that halveni says for a long duration. That that's a long-term loan. Versus a short-term loan. Hashilani is like, can I borrow it for a couple of days? And halva is for a minimum of 30 days and maybe more. And you might come to forget it. You might not remember the exact amount. Rashi says that the difference is simply this duration issue, which is that long-term, if you do it for a very long period of time, then you're going to come to document it because you're going to forget, or that's the nature of long-term loans. If it's a short-term item, you expect it back shortly, then you're not going to document it. And that's the difference between Sheila and Alva. Tosafot says, wait a minute, we know that Sheila or Stam Sheila is also for 30 days. We have that from the Gemara Minachot with regards to if you borrow a talit. If you borrow a talit, you don't have to put tzitzit on it for the first 30 days because it's not yours. After 30 days, you have to put tzitzit on it, not because it's yours, but because it looks like it's yours. But for the first 30 days, that's considered to be a Stam Sheila as 30 days. So Tosafot says maybe, according to Rashi, you could say that even though Stam Sheila is for 30 days, that doesn't mean you can't ask for it back earlier. The halva'ah, if you give a halva'ah without any term to it, then the minimum term for a loan is 30 days, and you can't ask for it back earlier than the 30 days. With Sheila, yes, a regular lending in that sense is for 30 days, but you could ask for it back earlier. So that's one way he tries to solve the problem with Rashi. But then he says, Viri Perish, and this is what Fred was suggesting before, There's a difference between halva'ah and Sheila, which is a halva'ah is a loan, where you are lending the value, not the item. You expect not the item back, but you expect a monetary equivalent back. If you lend someone money, you don't expect to get the exact coins or bills back. You just expect to get that value in return. That's called the halva'ah. She'ilah is borrowing, 
borrowing the object where you suppose that the object is going to be returned. The object itself can be returned. Now the difficulty with that is that we're talking about here Kadeshemen and Kadeyayin. So over here you're not going to get back the exact barrel of wine or exact barrel of Shemen, although you can at least assume that you're going to get back something of the equivalent. We're not borrowing value, you're borrowing a, a object itself. Right, the same thing by the Kikarot, right? So it doesn't work exactly like we would say in other situations where Shelah means literally you borrow a coat. You borrow a shirt, and then you're going to return the exact shirt, the right clothes. That would be a more classic case of she'elah. But the fact that you use that lashon of she'elah, even though in our instance, or our situation, you're not going to get them back in, nevertheless, lashon she'elah has a meaning that's more along the lines of getting the object back, where you assume that's not something that you write down. That's something that you do between friends. That's something where it's done on trust, in a sense. So Sheila is a less formal type of lending. It's a more informal type of lending where you expect the object back, as opposed to halva'a, which is a loan that you would take from the bank, that you take from someone where there's much more formality to it. That difference would lead to this problem of whether you're going to write it down or not to write it down. So that's the reason behind using one language and not the other language. So now the Gemara says, The problem is that the words are used interchangeably sometimes. He really should have said, Lend me the money. And instead he uses And people don't care about that. I mean, the language nuance is not so exact that if you say the wrong thing, then you got the wrong loan, it's not working. People know that when you say lend me, whether you say it as halveni or hashileni, they know what you mean. You say, Hashileni Kesef, even though that's the improper way to say it, nevertheless, he knows what you mean. You know, he knows that you mean, lend me the money. We say, Halveni ate, lend me a pen. Even though, again, both cases, you're using the wrong language, then people will be like, okay, I understand what you mean. That's today, too. If you do that in Israel, if you use the wrong language, they'll tell you you're using the wrong language, but they know what you mean. So in a case of a whole, if Hashileni can also mean Halveni, you're going to come to write it down. That means on Shabbat also, even if you use the term Hashileni, you might end up writing it down. Samalei, we'll skip the parentheses, with Shabbat, Kevin, De Hashileni, Hu, De Sharele Rabbanan, Halveni, Lo Sharele, Min Karamilta, Velo Atile Michtov. You're right, on a weekday, maybe people will interchange the words. Maybe people will mix them up. But on Shabbat, Chachamim demanded that you say it in a certain way. And the fact that they demand that you say it in a certain way will be the Hazkara. That's the way to remember it. The way you remember it is because you have to say it this way, and you're going to be careful about saying it this way. So by the fact that you know that there's a law that governs how to borrow on Shabbat, add some the fact that you know that, that will remind you that you're doing it on Shabbat, and that you're not going to write it down. So even if you use the term Ashilani that you might use in another context for borrowing like Halvani, but since on Shabbat you have to use that Lashon, that's enough to remind you. That whatever you have the opportunity to do something in a different manner than normal, we ask you to do that and not to mimic the way you would do it on a weekday. Our women, that they go to fill their pitchers with water. Why don't they change the way that they draw water? They bring water on a, from a normal weekday. So he answers him, Mishim Delefsha, what are we going to ask them to do in order there to be a Shinoi? Hechad Abde, what do you want them to do? Demalyan Bechatzva Ravo, someone who uses a large pitcher, a large bucket, Limlu Bechatzva Zuta, now should use a small pitcher, a small bucket. Ha Kamaf Shubihilucha, you're trading one thing for another. Right, she's going to have to now make the trip multiple times in order to end up with the same amount of water. So yes, you're changing the fact that she's now carrying less each time. 
But in carrying less, you're now asking her to walk more times. Demayin bechatz vezuta. So you're going to say, if they used to take it with a small bucket or small pitcher, limnu bechatz verabo, then they should use a large one. Kamapshu b'masui. Then you're forcing them to exert more effort each time because they're carrying a heavier load. You haven't solved your problem. You're asking them to change, but the change in itself requires more work. So that more work in the change doesn't really solve your problem. So nifris sudra. So why don't you place a cloth over it? Do something. You have like a the Shabbos white cloth that you're going to put on top of the bucket or the pitcher when you came back. You know, it has Shabbos written on it and you're <laughs> carrying the pitcher back. Or Yom Tov, here it's Yom Tov written on it and she's carrying it back. Marzez, oh, that's problematic because Adelide Shita, because it'll soak the water. It'll catch some of the water. It'll splash on the way. The water will get into the cloth and then she's going to end up squeezing it out. Which is interesting. Tosafoto notes over here, Mikan, Maiti, Rabbeinu, Tam, Rayo, Tabiyayim, Mishem, and Loshayichi, Shita. That there's no din of schita by yain v'shemen. Here the Gemara only says this problem by water. By water there's an issue of schita. There is no issue of schita by wine and by oil. Gemara back on Kufyud Aleph there. Dosvo talks about the suchraita nizaito. That's the plug that you put into the barrel to stop it from coming out. Over there that's a posik reshe. That when you stick it in you're going to squeeze out of it. Dosvo over there is desperately trying to figure out what the problem is. Because what's the issue? You're squeezing wine out of a cloth. Squeezing wine out of a cloth... It's not a problem of skita. Skita is only by Mayim, according to the Rebbeinu Tam. Right, so that's a question. Is it Melabim? Can Melabim be with something besides water? Tosafot is struggling over there to figure out what the problem is. This Tosafot is mentioning, go look back there on Kufiud Aleph, Amud Aleph. So now, Nechsayeh b'Nechtema. So let her cover it with a cover. Let's have some sort of fixture that's put on top. Puts on a cap or cover on top of the pitch of the bucket. Zimda d'Mifsak v'Ata d'Mikteret. Well, a cap that you have on there is usually it's going to be tied on. It's going to be affixed in some manner. And if it breaks, the fixture breaks, then what are you going to do? You come back and tie it. And that, as Rashi says, is a keshu shokayama, because you plan on leaving it there permanently. So So he says, that's why we don't have any option. If we don't have any option, we just tell them to do it the way you do it normally, because we don't have a way to ask them to change without creating additional issues. Person may not, according to Rashi, misapkim is to clap. Rashi says mishum evel because of mourning, which is somewhat difficult. One cannot bang on their chest, according to Rashi. Do not dance. On Yom Tov, Rashi says because shema yitakin kleishir. If you like to dance, you might come to fix musical instruments in order to enhance the dancing. That's what Rashi says. Tosafot raises the issue with Rashi because we know in Moed Katan, the issue of Elisabkim and Tapkim, which was done at funerals as part of the eulogizing process, they had these women that engendered feelings of sadness by saying keynote, by crying, by making all these noises. So we know that Zasser not only on Yom Tov, Zasser on Cholomoyed. Forget about Yom Tov. So why would this be particular to Yom Tov? So Tosavot says that all of these items are part of musical issues. So Sapkim, like we said before, is to clap. And Metabchim, to bang on your thigh, to keep a beat on your thigh. And then Merakdim would be to dance. In that instance, they would all be connected to Kleshir. It's all about making noise on Yom Tov or being involved in dancing. And that would be a problem with Shema Itake and Kleshir. And then he says them, We see that people do this, and there's no response, meaning that we don't stop them, nobody says anything to them. And we know from earlier in the Masechta, back on Taf Nunheyam Aleph, there's a requirement to give tochacha. It's a requirement if someone's doing something wrong, you have to say something to them, you have to do something. Yet here, we're watching them do this, and we're silent. He says, Another thing that we saw earlier in the Masechta, on Kufmeyam Aleph, 
person shouldn't sit on the lechi itself. Dilma migander because maybe the object that he's holding will roll out. And he'll bring it back in, he'll carry it back in. We said before, this has to do with a mavoy. Mavoy, which has walls on three sides, has courtyards around it. And they can create what's called a shituf mivaot, to allow you to carry within the mavoy. The one end of the mavoy is usually open into the rishut rabim. How do you demarcate that end, the end that's open to the rishut rabim? You put in either a lechi or a korah. It's a little bit, we're getting into Erevin, we're getting a little preparation for Erevin. So that lechi or korah, it's machloket in the Gemara Erevin, is it functions as a mechitza for the fourth side, or does it function just as a heker, a demarcation of where the carrying location ends? Either way, that is the siman of where you're allowed to carry to. Whether you think it's the wall, or functioning like the wall, or functioning like the heker, that's the end. This person, what is he doing? He's sitting on the lechi. So he sits on the lechi, and he's holding a ball in his hand, and he's just uh, hanging out there. But when he sits on the lechi, he's basically wiped out the heker here, because he's sitting on the lechi. Something falls out of his hand now, he's going to reach out to bring it in, but there'll be nothing there to remind him that he shouldn't bring it in, because he's sitting on the lechi itself. So that's why Rava says, don't do this, don't sit on the lechi. But yet, We see that people bring their pitchers, their buckets, and they sit at the entrance to the mavoy, and we don't say anything to them, even though, again, we know that there's a problem here, nobody speaks up to say anything. Ella... Hanach Israel, leave Bnei Israel alone, mutav, shiushogagim, va'al yehu mezidim. Better they do something bishogeg, where they do it unwittingly, unknowingly, va'al yehu mezidim. If you tell them not to do it, and then they go ahead and do it anyway, then they're going to be a mezid. Better to leave them alone and claim that they are a shogeg than to interfere and make them into a mezid. I'll come back, we'll explain when does this apply. Sover he thought to say, hanimile bidurabanan. This is only true on Dine de Rabbanan. You just quoted me two issues that are issues me de Rabbanan. Issue of not clapping, banging on the thigh, and dancing is This issue about sitting on the lechi, another takanat chachamim. So I would think, when do we not interfere is when we're dealing with Dine de Rabbanan. But Dine Rabbanan, we leave it alone. We don't bother them about it. We say, mutav But if it was a dindo, right? Uh, then we would not forego. We would not let this... Pass without saying something. Velohi, and that is not true. Loshna derabanan, veloshna bidoraita. It makes no difference whether it's a din derabanan or a din doraita. Why? The adding on to Yom Kippur, meaning that Yom Kippur is the tenth of Tishrei, beginning at whatever begins the tenth of Tishrei, whether it's Shkia or it's Seta Kulchavim, until the following evening at that same time. It's that 24-hour period. That is what is classified as Yom HaKippurim. The Gemara Darshins, because it says, Mi Erev Ad Erev, that from evening to evening, and there it mentions uh, Yom HaChi'i, it makes it on the ninth day. So the Gemara Darshins that you have to be Mosifim Michol HaLakodesh, that you have to add on from the weekday, you have to add on from Erev Yom HaKippurim to Yom HaKippur. You have to extend Yom Kippur beyond the 24-hour period. To seven Yom HaKippurim, Min HaTorah. It's a drusher from the Pasuk in the Torah, Despite the fact that it is the And we see people eating and drinking straight down to nightfall up to the last minute before Yom Kippurim. And we do not say anything to them. We do not stop them. So you see here that we have an example of a dindo raita where we also don't interfere. Where we also don't give tochucha. So you see that this principle is equally applicable to dine durabanan as it is to dine deoraita. And that we invoke the principle of Yushogigim. Better that they do it unwittingly 
and that they should not be doing it intentionally after you tell them not to do it, and they do it anyway. So here there are a lot of important halachot that came out of this. Truth it's brought down in Shulchan Aruch. This din is brought down in Shulchan Aruch in Hilchot Yom HaKippurim. The din of Tochacha, that's where it's found in Shulchan Aruch, because this is the example of where you don't give Tochacha. It's this case of Tosefet Yom HaKippurim. So if you go back to Nun HaYomad Aleph, there Tosafot already tells us or gives us some of the distinctions that apply to Mutav Shogim Vahot to you Mezidim. There, Tosfut says, when do we apply that? When do we invoke that principle? Even though they're not going to accept what you say, you should still give them tochukha. doesn't matter that they're not going to listen. You have to say something. The problem here is that we have tension. We have a tension, which is that the Torah tells us, that you have to rebuke your friend, that you should not hate your friend, and you should not carry a grudge against him. So you're supposed to be mochiach. Supposed to rebuke the individual. That's one piece. The second thing is, and this is what the Gemara is discussing, is that if a person has the ability to say something and doesn't say something, they become responsible for that issue. And they are held accountable. That means, we are jointly culpable for the activities of Klal Yisrael. And therefore, someone acts improperly, you're going to be held accountable for it. So you better speak up, because otherwise you're going to be held accountable. The only way to separate yourself or to say that I am not responsible is by telling them you're doing the wrong thing. So you need to speak up for both of those reasons. And yet, over here, we have a Gemara that says, don't say anything. So how do you reconcile those? So Tosfut over there gives you the beginnings of a framework of how to separate between them. And he says... It's a question of whether they will accept it or not. The difference in the recipient. If you know the recipient for certain will not accept what you're saying, then we invoke this principle of mutav shiushogim v'al diyu mezidim. And Tosavad puts the burden of proof on you, meaning that it has to be that you know for sure that they're not going to listen. If you have any doubt about whether they're going to listen or not, you must speak up. You must say something at that time. So that's the worst qualification. The first distinction that we draw is this difference that Tosfor mentions, which is whether they're going to listen or not. If we are certain they're not going to listen, then we leave them. We say better that they're unwitting about it. Then if they're not going to listen, it means they're going to continue to do this action. And if you tell them about it, then they become a zidim. You're going to make it much worse for them than the situation is at current. Right now, I think it's not such a big deal. So they do it thinking that there's no real Isur here. At least there, the Shog again. Once you've told them that it's a complete Isur and they're going to continue to act that way, now you've made them into Mezid. So you've actually caused the situation to deteriorate. So there, we don't want you speaking up. In a case where you have any suffix, any doubt as to whether they're going to listen to you, we ask you to speak up and say something because maybe you'll make a difference. Maybe you can make a change. And also, you have to discharge your obligation for and to ensure that you're not held accountable for what they are doing. So that's the first distinction. The second distinction that's drawn by the Rishonim is about whether it's mifurash bikra, something that is explicit in the pasuk, there, you have an obligation to give tochacha, even if they're not going to listen, because they must know about it. It's a pasuk in the Torah. This is not something hidden. This is not something that they wouldn't otherwise know about. Here, by Tosefet Yom HaKippurim, is a drusha from the pasuk. It's not explicit in the pasuk. It's a drusha from Torah Shabal Peh on the psukim in the Torah, but it's not the pashtuta psukim. The fact that to be mostly b'chol kodesh is a din doraita that's learned out of the psukim, not something that's written explicitly in the psukim. So there, we, again, we invoke the principle of mutav shiushogim v'altu mezidim, but we will not say that when it's mefurash bikra, and the Rishonim say that. So if it's something that's explicit in the Torah, then you do have to say something, 
even if they're not going to listen. The other area where we have exceptions to this rule are, number one, where you have like today, where people are mechalolei Torah mitzvot, and they really don't care about it. The Pasuk says, and the Rishonim put this out, it says, Chokiach, Tochiach et Amitecha. Amitecha generally is determined to be Amitecha ba mitzvot. It's someone who is in the same world as you, in the same circles as you. It's only someone who would care about the fact that you're being Mochiach, or care about doing mitzvot, that you would be obligated to be Mochiach. If it's someone who doesn't keep any of Torah mitzvot, doesn't care about Torah mitzvot, it's pointless to be mochiach such a person because they're not within that world of amitecha. Therefore, today, many of the poskim today say it, and it would start to come up already in the Rishonim, say that in that case you do not have to be mochiach because they're not in the world of tochacha. They're not even in the world of arevut. They're, they're so far gone that there's no point in interacting with them. The other exception to the rule is someone who you are very close with, someone that you are friendly with, over there, you actually have to try harder to give them tochacha. And there the Rishonim bring, and then it's passing aloha, that you have to be mochiach, such an individual who you have goodwill with, until that goodwill deteriorates. Until they scream at you, until they're angry at you, you have to be mochiach them because of the nature of your relationship. The nature of your relationship is that you are friends, and therefore there is the high possibility or high probability that you will have impact on them. And since that is the case, and you know these are people that are Shomrei Torah Mitzvot, therefore we ask more from you in order to be mochiach. Human nature is the exact opposite. The less you know a person, the more likely you are to be mochiach them, to rebuke them, because there's that social distance that makes it okay to rebuke them. When you're very close to someone, then you're more afraid to rebuke them for the possibility of ruining the relationship. And so the Allah works in the exact opposite, which is that the more goodwill you have, the more chance that it will be listened to. And therefore we ask you to invest more in rebuking that individual. In general, the chokiach, tochiach, etamitecha, the mitzvah, to be mochiach, is interesting. Why does the Torah ask you to be mochiach? So some of the Rishonim bring the reason, which is an important idea, which is that if you do not rebuke, then what ends up happening is that you hold a grudge, or you upset at the person. Just like by Avram and Avimelech, when Avimelech's servants took the Beirut that Avram had dug, Avram is mochiach at Avimelech. He tells Avimelech that there's been a wrong done here. If you tell the prisoners a wrong done here, then you give them the opportunity to apologize for doing the wrong, and you also give them the opportunity to rectify the situation. If you never tell them about it, there will be no apology forthcoming, and the situation will not be rectified. In that case, what's going to end up happening is that you'll be, you're going to carry a grudge, you're going to be upset at this individual, and it will cause, in the long run, more damage in terms of your behavior and your interaction with this individual. Better to speak about it up front and explain to people what the offense was, rather than to hold it back. So that's an independent reason as to why to be mochiach people, independent of the issue of a revut and responsibility for mitzvot, is this other issue, which is that if you don't deal with it, it's going to cause or have ramifications in the long run which are negative. So we'd rather that we deal with it up front and that people are good to each other by telling what they've done wrong and then allowing the other person to apologize. Again, all of this stuff requires chokhmah. The Gemara Nerechian talks about the fact that you have to be an expert to be mochiach, that this is a skill. It's not for every man. And the important skill set is because what Rabbi Kiva discusses over there that if you tell someone, ah, he says, listen, you did this wrong, the person will say, before you take out that little toothpick between my teeth, why don't you take out the Korah that big beam that's between your eyes? Which is usually the response of most people, that if you tell them they're doing something wrong, they figure out what you're doing wrong, or they come back at you with what you're doing wrong. So again, it's a skill set, it's a nuance, 
It is something that requires a lot of delicate maneuvering in order to do it, but it's important, again, for both reasons, both from the side of a revolt and maybe improving the situation, but also from the social ramifications of improving the relationship and making sure people know that they've done something wrong and, and need to rectify it. All right, back to the Gemara now. You're a woman from her friend with regards to Kikarot. You're suggesting here that the only problem here is that it's a problem with Shabbat to borrow the rolls. On a weekday, you could do this without any problem. So what would be the problem on a weekday? Maybe our mission is not like Yilel, it's not. A person should not lend a kikar, a loaf of bread to their friend, until you've established what the price is. Now, it's interesting here, by the way, lo talveh, he's using the shon of loveh by a kikar. It is something that is consumed and used up, so you could argue that it is right to use the word talveh, although today in modern Hebrew, the word loveh is only used by money. It's not used by objects. He says, don't do this until you've established the price of return. Shema, yokruchitin, because maybe the price of wheat will go up. Nimsa ba'otli, they rebeat. And what you've done is created an effective interest on the item. So for instance, she gives you the rolls, lends you the rolls, and at that time, there is shekel a piece. By the time you go to return the rolls, there is shekel and a half a piece. Now, when you give her back the rolls, what you basically did was you borrowed five rolls, five shekel, when you go to return it, you're actually giving her back five rolls that are worth seven and a half shekel. So what ended up happening, because she lent you five rolls, she ends up getting repeat interest of two and a half shekel in excess of what she lent to you. Now this is not what we call repeat tsuta. It is a form of repeat from the appreciation of the value of the item. So what Hillel says you have to do is establish the price of the rolls up front, that they were shekel. That way she has the option to return you five rolls or five shekel. Whichever one works out to be better at that time. That way there's no question of rebeat. Because she has a choice. She can give you the five shekel or she can give you the rolls. If she gives you the rolls and they're more expensive, that was her choice. She had a right to give you the five shekel and then she's not paying interest. So that's, again, the issue is making sure that there is no interest that comes up because of appreciation of the object that you've borrowed. So now when it says, Afilu teme hilel, ha ba'atcher de kaitz damei, ha ba'atcher de lo kaitz damei. It has to do with the nature of the city in which you live, which is whether the price is established or the fixed price is established. In a city where the price is obvious and clear, in that situation, you don't have to worry about it because when she lends and gives her the rolls, she knows either she can get the rolls back or it's obvious what the price of those rolls is and she'll get the money back. That's the expectation of the one who lends. And then if you have a city where the price of the rolls isn't set, it's not easy to determine what the price of the rolls is, then you'll have this problem, which is unless you set the price then you can't lend it because of this fear of coming up with rebeat in the back end. So you could just say that our mission is talking about a case where the price is obvious and well-known, and since it's obvious and well-known, when she lends it to her, there's no expectation that she'll get the rolls back because she could get the equivalent value back and be just fine. If he doesn't believe him, we said that in the mission, he takes some form of collateral. Itmar, halvat yom tov. A loan that is done on yom tov. Of Yosef Amar, lo nitna litava. You cannot bring it to court in order to claim the loan back. Rav Amar, nitna litava. Rav says you can bring it to court and take it back. Question is, does the loan on yom tov have halachic standing of a loan where you could come to court and enforce the loan? So Rav Yosef says no. Rabba says yes. 
The reason that we say you cannot claim it in court is because if we say you can claim it in court, what's he going to do? He's going to document it because he wants to be able to get his money back and he wants to go to court, so he wants the documentation of the loan. You say that you can claim it because if you tell people they're not going to get their money back or you can't go to court to enforce it, people are never going to lend. You're going to end up ruining Simchat Yom Tov because nobody's going to lend with the knowledge or the possibility that they're not going to get their item back. So it's not our Mishnah. Our Mishnah says, leave your talit there after you've borrowed the item. If you say, that it's not able to be claimed in court, he's got to create his own enforcement. If the court won't come and enter on his behalf, he has to create a way that he can get the money back. So what does he do? He takes collateral in order to insure it. And that's why he works things out after Shabbat. If he can go to court to enforce the loan, why does he leave collateral there? He'll give him the money and then he'll go claim it in court. So the answer is easy. What do you mean? I don't want to end up in court. Court is an undertaking. I have to go to court. I have to be baked in together. We have to get Dayanim. It's a whole process. Who wants to go to court? I'd rather have the collateral and solve this problem quickly than have to go to court to deal with this issue. person who shechs a para on Rosh Hashanah and then divides it up. If it's a year in which Elul actually has 30 days instead of 29 days, Mishamait. Then you have a problem with what we call Shemitat Ksafim. This is in the Shemitah year. At the end of the Shemitah year, all loans are forgiven on the last day of the year. Well, it depends when the last day of the year is. Depends on Elul. If Elul is 29 days, the 29th day is the last day of the year. If Elul is 30 days, then the last day of the year is day 30. What ended up happening here was the first day of Rosh Hashanah. They were coming in for Simchat Yom Tov, and they came and they split up this parah. Then, all of a sudden, Beitin decided, no, no, today is not Rosh Hashanah, tomorrow is Rosh Hashanah. Well, that is, what does that make the first day of Rosh Hashanah? The 30th of Elul. This person just lent money. He basically gave them the para, and he says, you owe me the money to pay for it. He just lent them money on the last day of the seventh year. Guess what? That's going to be forgiven now. That's going to be mishamit. That's going to be wiped out. So that's what the Gemara says here. If Elul was 30 days, mishamit. If it's the first day of Rosh Hashanah, it's not going to be forgiven, because then it's after the seventh year. If you're not able to collect it, my mishamit. Then what's being forgiven? If you have no enforcement in court, if you have no way to go and claim the loan back, what does it mean here that the loan is forgiven? The loan is forgiven means that you don't have any collection right. But if you didn't have a collection right to start with, then what does it mean that it's forgiven? Shiny Otom, the Igwe Milta the Cholhu. Over there, it was retroactively became a weekday. Rav Yosef only made a statement, as Totsvot says, you can't say that it's a complete weekday, but Rav Yosef only made a statement when it was Vada Shabbat or Vada Yom Tov. When you have a safek of whether it's Shabbat or Yom Tov, over there, we don't say that you can't go into court and claim it. There you can go to court and claim it because it turns out that it really was a weekday. A weekday, we don't worry about you writing things down. We don't worry about this whole issue. And therefore, it is court enforceable. So, Tashmami Seifa. That's the way you're reading it. What are you going to do with the latter half of that? Mishnah im lav eno mishamit. If it is really the first day of Yom Tov, then it's not mishamit. If you say that it is court enforceable, you can make the claim in court. Then I can explain what it means that it's not mishamit, that it's not forgiven. If you tell me that you can never go to court and enforce it, what does it mean that it's not forgiven? 
Not forgiven is only in the context you can go and enforce it in court. It's pretty clear from the Gemara that that's what it means. It's not so simple. By Shemitah, the answer is, well, we ghost. You're not allowed to press for the loan back. That seems like even outside of court, you can't go ask for the loan back. It's not just in court. Here the Gemara assumes that it's only in court that it would make a difference to be forgiven or not forgiven. The Gemara says, what does it mean that it's not forgiven in a context where you couldn't claim it anyway? You couldn't enforce it in court. So what are you going to suggest? That means that if he gives it voluntarily, that you're allowed to take it? So yes, it's not court enforceable. What does that mean that it's not forgiven the loan? It means that if he comes to pay you the loan, you don't have to refuse it. You don't have to not accept it. Well, if you explain the latter half of the Mishnah that way, then we cloud the ratio. How do you explain the first half of the Mishnah? First half of the Mishnah says, First half of the Mishnah says, It is Mishamit. That it is forgiven. So what are you going to say? Forgiven means there. In that context, forgiven means, Don't accept it if he gives it to you. If he gives it to you voluntarily, you don't accept it. Gemara says, That's not true. We know that that's not true. You're allowed to accept it. When we say forgiven, it means you cannot demand the loan. But you're allowed to accept it. If the person voluntarily pays back the loan, you're allowed to accept it even after... Shmitat Ksafim. So Gemara says, no, Reisha Mishameitan. In the case of the Reisha, where it's, the loan is forgiven, yes, he can voluntarily pay it to you. But when he comes to pay it to you, you have to say to him, the loan's forgiven. You have to actively tell him that he doesn't have to pay. In the latter case, he doesn't have to say that, since it wasn't forgiven. If he comes to pay you voluntarily, you don't have to say, you know, you don't have to pay me. It's just not enforceable in court, but you don't have to tell him I don't have to pay me. Okay, it's not. We have a Mishnah that supports that someone who returns a loan on Shvit, he has to say to him, it's forgiven. You don't have to pay it back. If the borrower says, even though I still want to pay you back, you're allowed to accept it there. And the Gemara Dashan for that, Davar means Dibur. Dibur Achat. You have to tell him once that it's Shomet, that it's forgiven. If he decides after that that he wants to give it, that's his choice. You don't have to refuse to take the repayment. Ravia shakal mashkona. And we're talking back to Yom Tov. Ravia acted and did take a mashkon. Rabbi Barula marim irume. He used to do a little bit of a trick. Rashi says, They didn't take it on Yom Tov itself, but after Yom Tov, he used to grab something from this individual to ensure that he got his money back. Now, Tosavot says that he had Rabbi Rav Yosef, generally alochas ker Rabbi, which means that it is enforceable in court, so the question is, what about these two Amoraim that are, seem to be taking Mashkoon because they were thinking that they're going to not force it in court? Mar drew that connection between enforcement and collateral. Tosfot over there mentions, Rav Avya Rabba Barula Machmire Anafshayu. They were Machmir not to claim it in court, and therefore they took Mashkoon in order to ensure that they got paid back. This is for you, Ira. Erev Pesach that falls out on Shabbat. I'm Rabbi Yochanan. Magdish Adam Pischol B'Shabbat Mechagigato B'Yom Tov You're allowed to be Magdish a Pesach on Shabbat itself and your Chagiga that you have to bring on Yom Tov you're allowed to be Magdish it on Yom Tov itself in general there's an Easter Durabanan of being Magdish on Shabbat and Yom Tov it's a, like transactional in nature and therefore we do not allow it to be on Shabbat and Yom Tov here you have a statement from Yochanan that when it comes to a Pesach and Chagigat Yom Tov since they're Chovat Yom you're allowed to be Makdish them. Since that is the day's obligation, you're allowed to be Makdish them. So name of Messiah, let us say that our Mishnah supports that position. So you see here that it was on Shabbat itself, and he goes to get the Pesach. Well, if he's buying the Pesach on Shabbat, you know what he's doing on Shabbat, he's going to be Makdish as well. It wasn't Mukdash beforehand. I says, no, no, no. It's not a case here where the Pesach is not already Mukdash. 
The Pesach is Mukdash, Mikara Mikdash. Because he already made it Kodesh. He's just bringing more people on. People want to join his Korban Pesach, so he has to charge them for that. What he's taking collateral for is that they're going to pay him to be a part of this Korban Pesach. There, you don't have any proof then. Don't we have a Mishnah? So that you're not allowed to join a Behema on Yom Tov. You mean not allowed to become a partner in a Behema on Yom Tov itself? Where it says, This is people who normally would eat with them. People that normally would join with them. So therefore, It's as if he had in mind to join these people to his Korban originally. And therefore it's not a problem because he expected these people to join in with him. If you go to a shepherd who you normally work with, and then you can take a lamb for your Pesach, and then your Makdishit, and you can use that. Again, here you're being Makdishit on the day itself of Shabbat, or Yom Tov, whatever it is that you're taking. Since he normally comes to him, he expected him to come, and he was Magdishit up front on his behalf. Ah, Magdishkhtani. It says there that he's Magdishit. So when it says, Hekdish, Hilui Midrabanan. That's the bonus Hekdish. It was any Mugdash as a Korban Pesach, but he wanted to do that extra thing and say, I'm Magdishit also. Not that it has any halakhic impact, but he just wants to say that I'm Magdishit as the Korban Pesach, even though it already was Mugdash, the Korban Pesach. It's a nice thing, maybe similar to what we do on Shabbat. When we make Yiddish coming into Shabbat, despite the fact that Shabbat is already Kadosh V'Kaimu, nevertheless, we make Yiddish and we're Makdishit despite the fact that it's already Kodesh. So same idea over here. Umi Amar Rabbi Yochanan Alachi. Did Rabbi Yochanan ever really say this? Amar Rabbi Yochanan Alach of Stam Mishnah. Alach is like a Stam Mishnah Vitznan, and this is the Mishnah that the Gemara is worried about from Beitza. Lo Makdishim, Lo Marichim, Lo Machrimim, Lo Magbim, Chumot Masrot. Now to be Makdish. Now to do Erachin and Charamim. All of these involve being Makdish something, whether it's for the monetary value, whether it's to give to Ektesh or for the Mizbeach. Now to do any of these things on Yom Tov. You can't take off Chumot Masrot that we've discussed many times. You can't do it on Yom Tov, certainly you can't do it on Shabbat. The difference is between whether these are fixed korbanot. Is this a korban with a fixed time like the korban of Pesach? In that case, you're allowed to be Magdish on Yom Tov or on Shabbat. That's what the first statement was. They were dying about something that's Kavu Al-Azman. Has a fixed time to be brought. And just like the korban is Dochesh Shabbat, so too the Hegdesh, the Rabbanan gave a dispensation to be Magdish on that day. In a case where the korban is not have to be brought specifically on that day, just like the korban is not Dochesh, Yom Tov or Shabbat in that instance, so too the Hegdesh. Or being Magdish, that animal will not be Doche Yom Tov Vishabbat. Okay, we'll stop over here.